Hello, everyone, and welcome to Culturally Relevant, a podcast about film, television, art, and culture. I'm David Chen, and today is going to be a bonus diary episode wrapping up the year, 2021. This is the final episode of 2021, and you know the end of the year often gets people introspective, thinking about what happened over the course of the last year. And I think it's safe to say a lot happened over the course of last year. In this episode, I'm going to share five lessons I've learned from 2021. I'm going to say these are not exclusively 2021 lessons. Maybe they're 2020 and 2021 lessons, but uh, I think you'll get the picture. Uh, I want to start by saying, first of all, uh, I know that it's been a few weeks since the last episode of Culturally Relevant, and the publishing schedule has been a bit sparse lately. And I feel bad about that, but I do want to just say a little bit about what's going on, uh, and that is just that life has just been uh, pretty stressful this last couple months. And uh, I think I've been dealing with a number of personal issues that have taken a lot of my time, energy, and attention. And when that happens in my life, when I'm dealing with things that are very stressful and uh, where I feel like uh, my time is, uh, a lot is being demanded of my time, what ends up happening is that uh, basically the things that pay me are the things that move up in the prioritization, right? And so currently I am uh, managing two Patreon pages, one for myself and one for the film cast. And uh, I've continued to maintain those, uh, continuing to post a lot of bonus content over at patreon.com slash Dave Chen um, for my personal Patreon. And, uh, you know, those are the things that are basically generating me the most revenue online. And so those will get the most attention. Culturally relevant, Love the audience here. Love all of you listeners who continue to tune in every episode. Um, but I'm not making any money off of the podcast separate from my personal Patreon page. And so as a result, sometimes uh, during times when I have a lot of other things going on, uh, I'm not going to make as many episodes. And uh, I feel bad about that. And maybe one day uh, I will have the time and resources to be able to dedicate like week by week time to the show. I, I, you know, I, I, For a very long time, that was the case. And I hope it will get back to that again. But just the last couple of months have been a real challenge for me. And uh, and so I'm sorry about that. But if you are still around, if you're still listening, I really, really appreciate it. But let's talk about some of the stuff that's going on, right? Uh, I mean, I, I've mentioned sort of vague personal issues. And uh, I'll just give you like a very, very minor example, which is... Uh, one of the things that we've been dealing with recently is the fact that my brother uh, and his wife and their son were going to come visit uh, us here in Seattle for Christmas. And that there is a lot of decision-making going on around whether or not that trip should actually happen. Ultimately, it did not happen. Um, and I think it was definitely the right choice. Uh, the thing is, you know, all of us, my parents, uh, my wife and I were really looking forward to seeing family this Christmas. Uh, but it just ended up not being a good idea because of Omicron, because travel in Seattle is perilous right now with uh, a lot of snow, more snow than I've seen in all my time in Seattle, basically. And uh, we're just not prepared to handle stuff like that. And on top of that, you know, I've had to deal with certain uh, family members of mine not being fully vaccinated slash boosted and figuring out how to navigate that situation. And so that, that just gives you like a, a very minor idea of like 
some of the things I've been dealing with just on, on a personal level. Now, that, that's a very, very small issue that I just referenced, uh, but it's just meant to give you some color of some of the things that are going on. Uh, and, you know, imagine stuff like that, but multiplied by like 20x, you know, and you start to get a, a sense of, uh, of what's been going on uh, with me. So it's been a stressful time, and um, I appreciate your patience. Uh, in waiting for new episodes of Culturally Relevant. Thank you so much if you still are here. Three people I know have tested positive for COVID in the last week. Uh, friends of mine, you know, friends who I really uh, value and appreciate and um, and respect. And I, I don't think they did anything wrong necessarily, you know, but uh, I feel like with the latest Omicron surge, case counts skyrocketing, at least in Washington State, uh, we are entering a really weird and unprecedented time in the pandemic. Uh, it, and to me, it really kind of does feel like we're in the end game of the pandemic. And let me explain what I mean by that. Yasha Munk over at The Atlantic wrote a piece uh, about how Omicron is the beginning of the end. That was the headline of the article. Uh, and he says, quote, no matter the severity of the variant, the appetite for shutdowns or other large-scale social interventions simply isn't there, end quote. What Yashamunk is talking about in his article is he's saying that, uh, that the COVID-19 virus may be with us biologically for a long time, probably forever. You know, it will continue to infect people. It will continue to get them sick. It will continue to... Uh, hurt people, right? Like disable people and and kill people. But uh, what he believes, as laid out in this article, is that the pandemic as a social and political phenomenon is coming to an end. Uh, and one way we have evidence of that is just look at what is going on around you right now. We are seeing skyrocketing uh, case counts from the... Uh, Omicron variant, but very little is happening on a broad societal level to deal with it. There are individual things happening, like, for instance, the Consumer Electronics Show, CES. Is, uh, a lot of companies are pulling out of that. There's show, live shows that are being canceled. But there's no, like, wide-scale mandates or shutdown or not, shut, not, not mandates, shutdowns that are happening. And the appetite for them seems to be very low. He writes here, quote, despite skyrocketing, case, skyrocketing caseloads, few pundits or politicians are proposing strict measures to slow the virus's spread. The appetite for shutdowns or other large-scale social interventions simply isn't there. This means that we have effectively given up on slowing the spread or flattening the curve to a much greater degree than pre previous waves. We have quietly decided to throw up our hands. Scientists have their own way of deciding that a pandemic is over, but one useful social scientific marker is when people have gotten used to living with the ongoing presence of a particular pathogen. By that definition, the massive surge of Omicron infections that is currently coursing through scores of developed countries without eliciting more than a half-hearted response marks the end of the pandemic, end quote. And to me, it really does feel like we're we're nearing the end of this as a kind of wide scale sort of social societal event uh, between tons of people I know starting to get this thing. And also the fact that as a society, we're like vast swaths of our society are basically just being like, you know, it's like, let's just, we'll just see what happens. Let's just see what happens. The CDC recently revised its 
uh, recommended quarantine period down from 10 days to five. And it's just like, we're just, everyone's just going to see what happens. We'll just see what happens. And so I think that uh, it, it just feels like, hey, you know, pandemics end. Maybe we're approaching a period of time where either A, enough people will have gotten this that will have herd immunity or that the number of infections going forward won't be that big of a deal or uh, where people are just okay, broadly speaking, with the level of risk that this uh, disease inflicts upon the population. You know, like one or the other, maybe both, right? And and that to me would basically be the end of the pandemic. That, that basically like life would return back to normal and people just live with this risk or uh, the risk is so low that, you know, it's not really worth noting. Um, and as I like to point out at every one of these episodes, you know, I am not a medical expert. I'm not a public health expert. Uh, I'm just kind of sharing my own reflections on things. Uh, and you know, people seem to have found it a little bit useful and comforting over the course of last year, but, uh, yeah, that's kind of what I feel like we're dealing with right now. And, and it's a extremely weird and disorienting time and it's very stressful. It's very confusing. It's more confusing now than it ever was. We've been dealing with this thing for, what, uh, 21 months now or so? And in 2020, you know, 2020 was a shit year. Like, it was a terrifying, upsetting, you know, like, just plain awful year uh, when when I think back on it. But there were things about 2020 that, were better than 2021. And one of those things was it was pretty clear towards the end of 2020 what you needed to do. Like once it once it became clear that this thing spread through airborne droplets and stuff, it became pretty clear that uh, what you need to do is you need to isolate if you want to avoid getting uh, COVID, you know? And, and some people don't have the option to isolate. They have to go to work. Uh, and so if, but you know, even within that, there is decisions you can make that subject yourself to more or less risk. And so it's, it's very clear kind of what you had to do uh, if you wanted to avoid getting COVID. This year, it is way less clear, in my opinion. Uh, and I think that there has been a lot more ambiguity because there's been different waves, there's been vaccines, there's been boosters. And for me, it's been a constant question of what is okay and what is not okay and then it is a very difficult question to answer, I think. Uh, and so this year, in, in some ways, has been way harder. It's also been a year, uh, you know, like on, on one level, it's been, it's been great because this is the year where we got the vaccines. The vaccines rolled out and whatever you can say about vaccines that's scientifically based, they seem to significantly reduce the risk of uh, hospitalization and death uh, in most respectable studies you can find about this subject, right? And so that is a huge benefit that like we have some level of protection and assurance that if we get it, you, you, you probably won't die if you're vaccinated. But that doesn't cover everyone. There's immunocompromised people, people in risk groups that uh, still need to, to deal with this thing. And so you, you, you add all these things up and it just makes it for a much less clear signal of what to do, whether it's okay to gather together with friends in large groups, and so on this year. Uh, I, I would describe 2021 as kind of the year of, of false hope. You know, that's what it feels like to me. The year where it felt like we had a chance of beating this thing by 
vaccinating everyone maybe and following sensible measures around it. And, uh, and that just didn't happen. You know, it didn't happen. And uh, for, for a wide variety of reasons, we as a society, as humanity, did not beat this thing. Uh, we did not eradicate it, and it increasingly looks like it's impossible to eradicate. And so 2021 for me, you're a false hope uh, and kind of sad in that way, but also you know, not without its, its strong points, which is the fact that um, many of us have the ability to like uh, essentially have our lives saved from, uh, you know, a, a significant percentage of death, uh, because of these vaccines. So in the wake of all that, I mean, uh, you know, I, I do also want to call out that we, we passed a pretty grim milestone this year in 2021, 800,000 deaths, um, and more people died from the pandemic this year than in 2020, which is like, really upsetting to contemplate given that we actually have widespread availability of vaccines in the United States this year. Uh, this year was also the year where we saw a assault on the Capitol uh, and then a uh, sort of par- major political party in the United States try to downplay the seriousness of that and a media complicit willing to go along with that downplaying. This is going to be a sad and depressing episode of Culturally Relevant and I'm sorry about that, but it, it is, I feel, the reality that we are living in and dealing with. I feel like my hope for America as an ideal is really bleak right now. It feels like we are in uh, exigent circumstances when it comes to our democracy and the people in charge don't seem to recognize that. And I feel like, you know, uh, in a in a couple of years, it's very likely we'll be living under minoritarian rule, where a minority of the United States is enforcing its will upon the majority uh, of America using institutions that have been gerrymandered to shit, you know? And so, anyway, you know, I'm not feeling great about the future. And this episode in which I'm going to talk about five lessons learned from 2021 is going to reflect that pessimism. Uh, but, But maybe it will help you to hear uh, that there's someone else who's feeling this anxiety about all the things that are happening in the world. I hope it does. I hope it does. I hope this is not just net negative. And if it is, you, you'll probably just stop listening to this podcast like right now. So, uh, but okay, going going back to all that stuff, I was talking about how confusing it is. Lesson number one of 2021, our brains are not equipped to handle this level of uncertainty. That's what I think. You know, I think that our brains are not equipped to handle our social fabric is not equipped to handle, our society is not equipped to handle uh, the stuff that's going on right now. Uh, our our uh, sort of capitalist structure is not equipped to handle the stuff that's happening right now when it comes to the pandemic. Earlier on in the pandemic, uh, it was speculated and predicted that uh, that we would probably need to go into various periods of like lockdown and opening up and lockdown and opening up depending on uh, how many waves of COVID there have been. And, and there have been multiple waves in many places. Um, and so it's largely played out as it's predicted. It's like, hey, sometimes there's going to be a surge, sometimes there's not. And like, you're going to need to tighten down and you're going to need to not. And just socially, you know, business-wise, like society is not built for that mode of action. Like we, we are, we are just not constructed in such a way that, we can disseminate information reliably and quickly that we can take action that people who um, 
are told to stay home from work, are going to get paid by the government to do so uh, quickly. Like we, we're just not built for something like this. And uh, we're not built to handle this uncertainty, in my opinion, of like, uh, you know, are we allowed to spend time with friends? Are we allowed to um, spend time with family without subjecting them to undue risk? It's just a lot of uncertainty. And I just think that we're not built for this. And sadly, I don't think that our society has learned that many lessons about how to be built for this, you know, in the future. I don't think like we're going to make a lot of changes about funding public health, about, you know, funding more education about these kinds of things and, uh, and, and restructuring our values and priorities in such a way that will facilitate protecting those that are most vulnerable to something like this. Um, so that's kind of my lesson number one is our brains are not equipped to handle this. You know, in that article I spoke about earlier, Omicron is the beginning of the end by Yasha Munk. He wrote at the end of that article uh, something I thought was kind of interesting. He wrote, quote, When I was growing up in Germany, I was fascinated by news reports about life in very dangerous places. Residents of Baghdad or Tel Aviv seem to put themselves in danger simply by going shopping or meeting friends for a cup of coffee. How, I wondered with a mixture of horror and admiration, could anybody be willing to accept such an existential risk for such a trivial pleasure? But the truth of the matter is that virtually all humans have, for virtually all of recorded history, faced daily risks of disease or violent death that are far greater than those that the residents of developed countries currently face. And despite the genuine horrors of the past 24 months, that holds true even now. Is our drive to live life and socialize in the face of such dangerous foolhardy? Or is it inspiring? I don't know. But good or bad, it's unlikely to change. The determination to get on with our lives is deeply and perhaps unchangeably human. In that sense, the spring of 2020 will be remembered as one of the most extraordinary periods in history, a time when people completely withdrew from social life to slow the spread of a dangerous pathogen. But that was possible for a few months, I'm sorry, what was possible for a few months has turned out to be unsustainable for years, let alone decades. Whatever damage Omicron might wreak in the immediate future, we will most likely soon lead lives that look a lot more like they did in the spring of 2019 than in the spring of 2020. End quote. You know, it's a it's a testament to the idea that like human beings want to keep going. They want things to return back to the way they were. They want things to return back to normal. And I think lesson one: our brains are not equipped to handle this much uncertainty and change. Uh, and you know, a year from today, as I'm recording next year's version of this episode, uh, I, I think Yasha Munk's probably right. Like, it's probably going to look a lot closer to what it did in spring of 2019 than it does to spring of 2020, than it did to spring of 2020. Uh, and part of it is because I think we're, we're just not equipped to handle sort of going into lockdown, taking drastic measures, we're, and societally, we're not organized to, to facilitate that. Lesson number two of 2021. I don't trust people anymore. I don't trust people anymore. The last five years have been the story of me losing trust and confidence in my fellow man. You know, with the election of Donald Trump, it's such a, you know, I'll speak to this from the perspective of like, let's just talk about like podcasting, right? Like prior to 2016, 2017, you know, uh, we used to get people writing in to like the film cast, for instance, who basically were really... Uh, they're, they're very like conservative. They're like, keep your politics out of the podcast and so on, right? I think when you you or anyone else out there says to someone else like, hey, stay in your lane, man, just do podcasts. It's like an extremely reductive thing to say to someone on the internet. You know, it's like, 
it's putting them in a box. It's saying it's denying them of their full personhood in some ways, right? It's saying like you exist to entertain me in this area of my life, in sports broadcasting or movie commentary or whatever. And how dare you have any opinions in other areas of your life? I don't want to hear that from you. Now, you as a consumer, you're free to listen to or not listen to whatever you say. I'm not saying like you should, you have to listen to me, but I'm just saying telling someone that they can't talk about something else they're passionate about. Um, you know, like don't talk about this nonprofit you're passionate about. Don't talk about politics. Don't talk about this. Other stuff. It's just like you're saying to this person, you exist for my benefit in a certain area of life. And that's it, you know, n- nothing else. Um, and so in general, I have little respect for anyone who says anything like that. But then when Donald Trump got elected, you know, uh, his views I thought were so reprehensible across a variety of elements, you know, morally and in terms of like uh, race and gender and things of that nature that I, I felt, I feel, I felt and feel pretty good saying that like, uh, if you support Donald Trump, like we can't be friends anymore. You know, um, you support somebody who believes that people or, or doesn't believe that certain people should have rights, that certain people should have respect, uh, that I believe should have rights and respect, right? And that's a deal breaker. This is not a disagreement about what kind of steak we like or how well done we like our steak. This is like, goes to like a fundamental core belief. What's happened in the last 18 months with the pandemic and stuff, my distrust of people has increased even further because it's it's beyond just whether or not like this person that I know might support Trump. It's now... Um, I don't know if I trust you to do basic, common, everyday, sensible things to protect other people from this virus that might harm them. There was an article at Slate.com in April of 2021. I think I've read from this in the past, but it really defines everything that I believe about what's happened over the course of the last couple of years. The title of the article is, quote, I do not trust people in the same way, and I don't think I ever will again. And it's basically about how offices are starting to reopen. This was in April of 2021. Offices were starting to reopen, and it, it kind of inter- surveyed all these workers uh, and, and asked them, like, how you feel about offices reopening again? And uh, one of the quotes that they gave, it's really just going to stick with me forever. Um. Somebody wrote, quote, I do not trust people or institutions in the same way, and I don't think I ever will again, even as we go back to normal. And since much of the world is not vaccinated, it is not even close to over yet. I will not forget how our societies treated vulnerable people and essential workers as expendable, minorities as scapegoats, facts in public health as suggestions or lies, end quote. I don't trust people anymore. You know, I don't, I don't trust my fellow person to do the right thing. I don't trust that most people are fundamentally decent. Some people are a like <laughs> somewhat dwindling minority are uh, I mean I I don't know if that's true. I think I think a lot of people are. Maybe even the majority, but a massive portion of society just does not give a shit. And from this point forward in general, like I I now approach most people, I already was not like a super trusting person. I already was like a very careful individual prior to 2017. But in the last five years, like my my sort of overall attitude towards people has shifted from one of like trust and openness to suspicion and caution. And I think seeing how people have behaved during this time, seeing how people have been directly in defiance of common everyday public health measures has shattered my trust in 
fellow humans in our institutions. And uh, it's been an upsetting process. It's been upsetting to lose that trust, and I've been sad about it. But it is where we are. Sort of related to lesson number two about trust. Lesson number three. America is a cruel and callous nation. America is a cruel and callous nation. There's an article at theatlantic.com called Where I Live, No One Cares About COVID. Outside the world inhabited by the professional classes in a handful of major metropolitan areas, many Americans are leading their lives as if COVID is over, end quote. This is by Matthew Walther. And it was published in The Atlantic on December 13th. I'm going to start by saying that this was an irres... Like, The Atlantic has been a beacon of light uh, and great journalism and commentary over the course of the last couple of years. But this was a irresponsible piece to publish. Um, because it, it's kind of... First of all, the person who wrote it sounds like a complete asshole. And so it's just like, great, congratulations, you're, you're an ignorant asshole, good job. Um, but it's also like downplaying the seriousness of COVID and kind of trying to be like, like I understand like, there's some value in understanding how people in places that don't care about COVID feel. Like there is some value in that, but I don't know that it should have come from this specific messenger, Matthew Walther, who is uh, the uh, contributing, contributing editor at the American Conservative. Um, I'll read to you a quote from this article. Quote, I don't know how to put this in a way that will not make me sound flippant. No one cares. Literally speaking, I know that isn't true, because if it were, the articles wouldn't be commissioned. But outside the world inhabited by professional and managerial classes in a handful of major metropolitan areas, many, if not most Americans, are leading their lives as if COVID is over. And they have been for a long while. In my part of rural southwest Michigan, and in, many, in similar communities around the country, this is true not despite, but without any noticeable regard for cases, hospitalization statistics, which are always high this time of year, without attracting much notice, or death reports. I don't mean to deny COVID's continuing presence. For the purposes of this piece, I looked up the COVID data for my county and found that the seven-day average for positive tests is as high as it has ever been, and that 136 deaths have been attributed to COVID since June of 2020. What I wish to convey is that the virus simply does not factor into my calculations or those of my neighbors, who have been foregoing masks, tests, unless uh, work imposes them, in which case they are shrugged off as the usual BS from human resources, and other tangible markers of COVID-19's existence for months, perhaps even longer, end quote. So, uh, number one, fair point. You know, yes, pe- people are in your your place in the country, uh, Matthew, are behaving as if COVID doesn't exist, and that's that's fine. Like, good to know. Uh, but the way the piece is framed and structured, and uh, the kind of pleasure that Matthew takes in his own ignorance of what's happening in the world is truly shocking. 800,000 people have died from COVID uh, since this whole be- this whole thing began around two years ago. So to start with, uh, you know, he says, quote, many Americans are leading their lives as COVID is over, end quote. What Matthew is ignoring is the fact that 800,000 Americans are not leading their lives at all. And can you imagine writing this piece about any other thing? that takes 800,000 lives and not sounding like a complete raging asshole. Where I live, no one cares about cancer. Where I live, no one cares about car accidents. Where I live, no one cares about gun suicides. You would sound completely unhinged if you wrote something like that. Not to, like, unhinged and also, like, incredibly cruel and callous. Yes, it doesn't, you don't care about it, but does that mean it doesn't exist? Does that mean... 
that hundreds of thousands of people aren't dying from it? Does that mean that hundreds of thousands of people aren't becoming disabled and ill from it? And I don't think Matthew's opinion is like a complete outlier. Tens of millions of people feel how Matthew feels. America is a cruel and callous nation. Does not give a shit about people that die or that are dying or that become disabled. They're just fodder for the, you know, collateral damage crunched under the gears of the capitalist machine. And, you know, it's upsetting to read a piece like this because it's, it's like, this is how a lot of people feel. But that's my lesson number three of 2021. America is a cruel and callous nation. I want to pause here for a moment. Uh, first of all, if you're still listening, thank you. You know, I mean, uh, this is a real downer of an episode, but, you know, a lot of stuff I got to get off my chest. I want to take a moment to thank people uh, on my Patreon page who are supporting my work at patreon.com slash Dave Chen. Specifically, I want to thank my executive producers. I want to thank Ian, Scott S., Stephen M., Sid Y., Stephen A., Dan F., Jeff E., and Mark W. Thank you all at patreon.com slash Dave Chen. Thanks to everyone there. Uh, I've had a Patreon page for a little over a year now, and it's grown a lot this year. You know, the, the number of people that are there, the, the n- number of pledges, uh, and I've been really just proud of it and, and happy with it and um, just so grateful, so grateful and, and gratified and honored that people choose to support my work. And if you are enjoying this podcast and all the other stuff I put out on Twitter and on YouTube and on TikTok, super easy way to support me, patreon.com slash Dave Chen. Thank you so, so much for everyone who does that. All right, let's get to lesson four. So lesson four of 2021, people... (laughs) People will follow their beliefs to their doom. People will follow their beliefs to their doom. Uh, and, you know, the way to sum this up is actually an article that that inspired this podcast episode. Uh, Helen Branswell over at statnews.com wrote a piece called 10 Lessons I've Learned from the COVID-19 Pandemic. And of course, like all these pieces I'm referencing, I'll link to it in the show notes so you can read them, right? 10 lessons I've learned from the uh, from the pa- pandemic. And one of the lessons she learned w- was this statement. She says, quote, even in the face of a deadly pandemic, politics override public health. Call me naive, but it never occurred to me that before this pandemic, political leaders would put the lives of their citizens at risk by downplaying or downright lying about a disease outbreak, just because telling the truth might jeopardize their political fortunes. It never dawned on me that political leaders would oppose policies designed to save the lives of their citizenry and mitigate the personal and economic damage an outbreak was causing. Things like rules about wearing masks or getting vaccinated. If that thought had occurred to me, I would have assumed that such leaders would have been punished by their followers when it became clear a path taken for political expediency was costing tens of thousands of lives. I wouldn't have dreamed that instead, those same followers would embrace the bad advice and reject public health guidance. I didn't anticipate the havoc polarized politics would wreak on a pandemic response. I thought everyone would have the same goal. Keep as many people from dying as possible, end quote. This to me has been really shocking. You know, I, I think that on some level, I, I you know, I, I always knew that 
political leaders would try to save their own ass. Like that's we we've watched enough movies and know enough about society that like no matter how bad the catastrophe, political leaders are always going to look up for number one. Like that's always going to be the case. So I, I wasn't quite <laughs> as naive as Helen Branswell in this uh, section of her article, but I do agree wholeheartedly that. At the back of my mind, I always felt like, hey, maybe when people realize that like these policies or owning the libs or whatever is actually going to create like force like cause people to die and be disabled. People you care about, your family members, yourself, that when you see that your friends, your family, you you yourself are getting horribly ill and potentially dying from this. Uh, potentially becoming permanently disabled from this. That people would wise up, that th- that this would turn the tide, right? I-, I actually thought, like, at the back of my mind somewhere, I think I thought this for, like, a little bit. I thought, like, you know, that, that people would feel like, okay, wh- like, yes, uh, sure, you don't like Joe Biden, but, you know, uh, and you don't want to follow his policies, but maybe, maybe once you start seeing in people in your own life dying from it, uh, you might want to protect it. Once you see people tragically say goodbye to their loved ones via iPad in a uh, in a COVID nineteen ICU ward or whatever, that you would say, "Hey, you know what? This is bad. Like, I uh, let's put politics aside and actually like get the shot or put the mask on or whatever." I, I really thought on some of that that might happen, and especially with the vaccines being widely available, you can get a shot today. It's a miracle. This thing was produced in record time. You can get a shot today that will substantially reduce the risk of injury or death uh, as a result of getting COVID-19. Like, why would people not want that, right? Like, in my head, I was stupid, right, in thinking that this was the case. And and after seeing people that they know suffer, I I thought people would would wise up and, and change their tune on it. But that's not happened. We are permanently... Like we are permanently polarized and, and not only that, but like, this is a relatively simple problem to solve when it comes to what's facing humanity right now. This is a relatively simple problem to solve, right? right? Like we, we, we figured out a way to dramatically reduce, uh, how many people died from this thing. And there, there are literally like basic things, simple, comprehensible things. Uh, get a shot, wear a mask, stay socially distanced, good ventilation, right? Really not too complicated. And we have failed to really mobilize around it. My faith in humanity's abilities to solve really huge intractable problems has been forever shaken and probably destroyed. When it comes to climate change, we are fucked. Like this thing that's like killing people right in front of you, COVID-19, uh, it's hard enough for people to even wrap their head around what to do, right? And to actually do it. When it comes to climate change, an extreme, like a way more complicated, slower thing that's going to take decades to play out and that's going to impact people really differently around the world and around the country. I, I just think there's no chance we're going to be able to act in such a way Uh that's going to allow us to deal with this and you know in a in, in a meaningful way like my my faith in humanity to solve massive problems has been irrever- irreparably shaken and i don't know i don't know what to do about it there's also like 
related to this is also this kind of system, right, that enables and profits off of this. And I keep thinking back to this quote, you know, that I that I heard from Tony Gilroy, the writer of the Bourne movies, and you know, and Michael Clayton, like a few years ago. And I, I still think about this quote, and I know, like, he was talking about Donald Trump and people electing Donald Trump, and he's like, when Donald Trump was elected, he it, like shook his faith in people's ability to to decipher a person's character. He thought, like, oh, you would get that this guy is like a sort of con artist flim flam person you know like he, he people would understand that i think that's what he's trying to say if i recall correctly it's been like years since i listened to this interview but i i think that's kind of really tied into to my like the way i feel about humanity now too is that like i don't trust people to like understand what's important to act for the common good anymore and even in the face of the deadly pandemic politics override public health, but also like think of like Fox News, like everyone at Fox News is vaccinated or, or most people are. There's a, there's a vaccination policy at Fox News, right? But every night they get on the air and they peddle these lies and people in the audience, like if you're in the audience, if I'm in the audience of Fox News, first of all, I wouldn't be there in the first place. But secondly, I'd realize, hey, Tucker Carlson, you're full of bullshit. Because you yourself are vaccinated, why are you trying to sow dissension about vaccines? It's because there's money to be made off of it. There's money to be made off of it. You know, there's that quote at the end of Fargo, like, uh, what's her name? Uh, Frances McDormand's character, right? Um, and she's driving back in that car with Peter Stormare, Marge Gunderson. She's driving the back of that car with Peter Stormare's character. And she's basically like lamenting, like, all the horror and carnage that they've seen over the course of the preceding couple hours. And she's like, all, you know, all this, she's like laying out all this, all the people that have died right in the movie and like all the terrible things that have happened in that movie. And, uh, she's kind of, she's like lamenting it. Um, and it's, it's really sad. You know, it's, it's like this really sad moment. And she's like driving back in the car in this icy snow. And, um, the thing she says is, you know, uh, the, one of the quotes from that movie that I that I can't forget is she says, um, and for what? For a little bit of money. There's more to life than money, you know. Don't you know that? And here we are, and it's a beautiful day. I just don't understand it. That's how I feel about the system that enables and profits off of people's doubt, uncertainty, and, you know, gets people to take actions that will result in more people dying. Um, for what? A little bit of money, you know? A little bit of money. I just don't understand it. Lesson number five. Don't worry, guys. We're almost at the end here. <laughs> Lesson number five. Um, truly all we have is now. That's my lesson number five. Truly all we have is right now. Something I've learned over the course of the last year and a half is 
you, 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 we can't predict what's going to happen. I mean, can can any of us say with confidence that what how twenty twenty one played out was how it's going to play out? We cannot predict with any sort of confidence what's going to happen in the world. All we have is today, maybe tomorrow, where you can kind of predict kind of close to what's happening. And even then, many of us are wrong a lot of the time. Value what you have. Try to enjoy life because we don't know how much long we're going to have even things the way they are today. I truly think we're going to look back on what things are right now as the good old days. I truly think like we as American society, as humanity in general, are like heading to a really bad place. Uh, and it's hard to like live with that knowledge and, you know, it's hard to talk about that knowledge and it's hard to get people to listen. <laughs> and that's why I don't talk about it that much. But truly all we have is now. Value what you have today. Um, be grateful. Spend time and resources on the things that mean the most to you, you know, on the experiences that will matter to you that you're going to remember. Um, we have witnessed so much suffering and death over the course of the last couple of years. And I just feel like we need to take a step back, remember that what we have is the now, and try to act compassionately. Ed Young, uh, I, who I believe won a Pulitzer Prize for his writing on the uh, coronavirus, one of the best, like, truly a, 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 a writer whose work has been invaluable and who I, I could not get through uh, like <laughs> not could not, but like would have been much harder for me to get through the last couple of years if it was not for Ed Young's writing, right? And I've talked about it quite a bit here on on culturally relevant. Uh, he wrote a great piece called "America Is Not Ready for Omicron." I'm going to link to it. I'd recommend you read it. But there was another piece he wrote that I want to mention. It's called "I Canceled My Birthday Party Because of Omicron." And in this piece, he talks about how he was debating having a 40th birthday party, like a big celebration, and he canceled it. And you know. He he. Let's be clear. He does not think this is a big deal. He's not like, oh my gosh, I'm so wrong. Like, what a tragedy. He, like, he doesn't feel that way. But I think he just wanted to do basically what I'm doing on this podcast right now, which is like walk people through his thinking on stuff. Because I think it helps. It helps people when you walk, you know, like when other people walk you through their thinking. It's like, oh, you know, you can look at another person's way of thinking and and figure out like, what do I agree with? What do I not agree with? Why do why is that the case? You know. And so he's just walking people through how he's thinking about having a 40th birthday party. And he 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 canceled it because he's like I don't want to to subject people to like the risk. And so there's something in here that I thought was really smart, right? He says I've tried to take to heart the lesson I keep writing about. That the pandemic is a collective problem that cannot be solved if people or governments act in their self-interest. I've tried to consider how my actions cascade to affect those with less privilege, immune or otherwise. Instead of asking, what's my risk? I've tried to ask, what's my contribution to everyone's risk? I've done things that personally inconvenience me to avoid contributing to the much greater societal inconvenience of, say, a collapsed healthcare system. I still mask indoors. I still eat outdoors at restaurants. I still avoid large gatherings. I'm still writing articles that take a toll on my own resilience to help our readers make sense of a crisis that I desperately want to never think about again. I've tried to put we over me. For two straight years, America's leaders have largely punted the responsibility for controlling the pandemic to individuals, and now Omicron leaves said people with few options beyond boosting, masking, and the one no one wants to hear, avoiding social gatherings. If people really hunker down over the next weeks, 
eschewing the kinds of exposures that would have felt comfortable a mere month ago, they might be in a more secure position to gather by Christmas. This article was written a few weeks ago. But as my call in Ian Bogos has written, to, have a, to wrangle with these choices again, just as the holiday season begins, feels like a cruel joke, end quote. I think there's a, a lot to admire about this. And again, you know, I, I don't think he's making himself out to be a hero, but I really admire this method of thinking, which is that uh, when we take actions, one thing we can do is to behave compassionately, to think about how our actions affect other people. Not all of us have the luxury of being able to do that. Not all of us have the ability to isolate or wear a mask at our job. I mean, most people have the ability to wear a mask at your job, but you know what I mean? Like there are some instances in which you can't take all the measures that you might want. And so I understand that that's true. But if we can keep our, you know, keep uh, our ear out and listen for what's happening in the world, um, apply reasonable measures to our actions, uh, you know, I, I think that it is possible for people to make a difference. It is possible for us to still um, contribute to to good and to help each other during this time. Um, because truly all we have is now. Ed Young's piece ends in the following way, quote, it is easy to despair, but we cannot afford the luxury of nihilism. Grim, though the stories I've written may be, I've tried to infuse everyone with some hope with the acknowledgement that a better future is at least possible, if not probable. And despite everything, I firmly believe that it is, end quote. A better future is possible. Uh, and it starts with everyone behaving reasonably, taking responsibility onto themselves, uh, voting for politicians that will make systemic changes, driving for those changes once those politicians are in office, you know, all these kinds of things um, that I hope we'll all do in the coming days because we're going to need to. 2021, better year than 2020, still not great. Probably one day will be thought of as the good old days. Uh, but for now, I'm trying to get as much enjoyment and laughter and comfort out of the things I have available to me as possible. And I hope you will too. And I thank you for listening to this part of the podcast, getting this far. I thank you for being a listener for probably, you know, there's a pretty consistent audience for the show week to week. And if you're listening to this, you probably listen to other episodes as well. I've gotten so many nice notes this year um, saying that they enjoyed this interview or they bought a book based off of this conversation I had or that these diary episodes have been help. And I'm very grateful. I'm so grateful to have an audience and so grateful for all the support of the folks at patreon.com slash Dave Chen. I hope you have a happy new year and I hope that you enter 2022 refreshed, ready to take on the challenges that next year has to offer. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next year.